to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. This morning we're going to talk about a subject that we probably don't like to talk about. We don't like to think about it. We're going to talk about persecution. It's one of those words that really kind of... uh, We'd like to avoid talking about if we could. But the Lord Jesus spoke to his disciples concerning this. And often in our minds, we think of something like this happening maybe in China or the Middle East or in primitive areas of Africa. And indeed, persecution does take place in those areas, but persecution in variety of forms can take place even here. You don't read very long in church history without seeing constant acts of persecution toward those who have abandoned man-made religions and bowed the knee to Christ alone as their Lord. And you can pick about any country across the globe where there have been true believers and you'll find periods of time where there was persecution. Some of it was intense, some of it deceptive, but all of it was very real. I don't know if you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's not one of those easy books to read. Um, But it chronicles the persecutions from the first century through the 17th century. I'd encourage you to read it, at least to see the price that was paid by countless believers by standing firm in their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, John Fox records incidents of persecution by Muslims, by idolaters, many others. The bulk of this record involves religious world persecuting those with a true faith in Christ. You look at the opposition at the early believers. Those who stood against them and sought to shut them down. It was the religious world of Judaism that rebelled at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And other times it was the perversion of Christianity that mounted attacks against true believers. Can't be help, uh, help but be reminded of, you know, that great faith chapter in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 where many of the heroes of faith are mentioned, but then there are many who are not mentioned there in the latter part of the chapter. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 35 of Hebrews 11, women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not uh, not accepting deliverance that they may obtain obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned They were sawn asunder, were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains, in the dens and the caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Sometimes it's the attitude of the media to try to discredit the Christian message and the messengers. 
Other times it's the imprisonment, there's punishment, or even the killing of Christians for speaking publicly for Christ. But you may wonder, is this just a problem outside the United States? You know, we don't see Christians, we don't even read about or hear reports about very many Christians very often in our own country. But there's a constant opposition going on by the religious and the non-religious world that does not understand truth. Christians are negatively caricatured by television and movies. News writers often slant their version of stories involving Christians to make us look like we're backward, ignorant, or hate mongers. Uh, Those who stand for the truth of God's word are scolded, are insulted, are lied about, are criticized. Christians often get mistreated in the job setting due to their faith. Some get overlooked in promotions, and we could go on and on, but I think you get the picture. The unbelieving world about us is offended by the truth of the gospel and will stop at nothing to silence the message of Christianity. And our Lord warned about that persecution so that we would not be surprised or it would not catch us off guard. It comes inevitably by, uh, from the world that prevailing spirit or attitude embodied by those who do not know the living God through His Son. Someone has called it the created moral order in active rebellion against God. Now sometimes we get the wrong impression of what is meant by the world when we consider that it is something beyond the walls of this church. Occasionally I think the greatest persecution going on in our country comes from within the walls of a church by those who profess Christianity but do not know Christ in a saving way. And so whether the persecution comes from within the local church or outside the church, I think we need to be ready ready to face it. And when persecution comes, we can face it even as our Lord did without grim resignation, but by resting in the truth of God. So what is involved in facing persecution when it comes? I want you to notice in our text this morning, first there are some commands to prepare. Some commands to prepare. Someone many years ago said mere churchmanship and outward profession are cheap religion, of course, and cost a man nothing. But real, vital Christianity will always bring with it a cross. Paul told Timothy, Yea, in all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Uh, Peter adds to this, he said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some tr- strange thing happened unto you. And our Lord told the disciples, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And so persecution, tribulation, trials, suffering, are all biblical words that describe the lot of those who stand in faithfulness to Christ and in opposition to the world. It's not something that might happen to Christians, but rather something that God's Word declares will happen 
to Christians. Are you ready for that? Since this is true, then we must understand how to be prepared for that kind that time when it comes. And some of you have already encountered some varying degrees of persecution and trials for your faith. But take heart, our Lord has given you some truth to stand on. Now, the, the language here in our text offers two words that are commands. It's interesting that both of them relate to our understanding of the matter of worldly opposition to, for, to Christians for Jesus' sake. Notice, first of all, a command to know. The command to know. Now, verse 18 says, If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, it doesn't sound particularly like a command. But the word used for know implies a growth understanding rather than a full, complete understanding. And so we come to know this as we read God's word, as we read what Jesus said. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. It's the idea that you develop in a Christian life and disciplines. You are to grow in understanding the world's hatred of Christ and consequently its hatred of you as a disciple. Why should anyone hate Jesus Christ? Now, we've many of us have grown up being taught by our parents or Sunday school teachers the greatness, the kindness, the love of Christ. Many of us as children saying, Jesus loves me, this I know. And we heard the incredible way that he treated others, the things he did, the miracles, the healings and so forth, the ways he often showed mercy, the multitude of ways that he relieved human mystery, misery. But how can anyone hate Jesus Christ? And yet, we must see Jesus Christ against the backdrop of the world. He's unique as only the only human who has at the same time been almighty and eternal God. Yes, he understands all the needs of humanity, but he also comprehends all the majesty of deity. Now, most of the world disbelieves this reality. Most people don't see Jesus as God. And the very nature of the world leads them to resist Jesus Christ. When God created the world out of nothing, it had order, it had symmetry, it had beauty, it had radiance of divine holiness. But when sin marred the world, it affected everything in the creation. The fall put a spirit of animosity toward God into every human heart. And it is the case of the human creatures rebelling against their creator due to the problem of man's fallen nature. The Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Man is a sinner. The psalmist describes this so graphically in the second psalm. He says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. The world considers it's their responsibility. Uh, consider the world considers its responsibility to obey the living God and his law as cords, as chains. 
They see the Bible as something that's going to enslave them, to chain them, to bound them. And so it rebels. The world rebels at the idea that anyone might rule over them. So the attitude of the world since man's fall is to oppose God Almighty and His ruling. Now this opposition was clearly seen in the way the religious world responded to Jesus Christ. They seethed in their hatred toward the one who came to redeem them from their sin. And over and over in the Gospels, we see the religious leaders secretly gathering to plot against the Lord. And not only they, ha- they would be frustrated at- until the time that he- uh, his being delivered for the crucifixion was at hand. But this is not a first century phenomenon. The world still hates Jesus Christ. That is the true Christ that is revealed in the Scripture. You can be sure that it tolerates and even admires the watered-down versions of who Christ is. But it is repulsed at the idea that Christ being the Savior and Lord and all that that entails. So Jesus tells us to realize the worldly hatred and opposition toward him is now passed along to us. His followers. There's a second command here. Command to remember. It's found in verse 20. It says, in verse 20, Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. The word remember here carries with it the exercise of understanding. It shows us that we're to kind of mull over, to think about the truths in our mind, to kind of do like we think of the cows doing with their cud, chewing their cud, you know, mulling it over, getting all the nutrients out of it they possibly can And so we're to mull over the truths that Jesus has given us. And we're to recall them uh, for constant use. Jesus is telling the disciples to remember a simple principle which he said will hold true. The servant is not greater than his Lord. Now this leads to an explanation of what he spoke about concerning persecution. Essentially our Lord tells us that there are no exceptions to the rule of persecutions. It's true that Jesus Christ bore our reproach before the Father, but it's equally true that He allows us to share in His sufferings. If our Master, the Lord Jesus, who is infinitely greater than us, suffered for the cause of righteousness and His kingdom, then do we think we would be exempt? It's not going to happen. This is why Jesus told us, who proposed to follow him that we meant uh, that to follow meant carrying a cross it's not a life of ease it's not the popular thing to do when christianity becomes popular watch out it may not be true christianity to follow jesus means to Receive the hatred from the world. Opposition at times from our own families. 
and suffering for the cause of Christ. I read about a young man on a mission field. He was 16 years old. His name was Arion. Arion came to Christ under a missionary's ministry and he walked faithfully for the Lord. He initiated a Christian club in his high school and the first of its kind in his formerly atheistic country. But Arion's walk was easy. No, it wasn't. He met with opposition from his mother. She scrutinized everything he did related to Christianity. He met with opposition at the school even from some of the administrators. He met even opposition from other professing Christians for his stand on the the word of God and the truth of the gospel. And our Lord has said, in essence, that's what you can expect if you're going to truly follow me as your master. Simple explanation here to the principle our Lord has laid down for us. He says, if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. None of us would deny that the world vigorously persecuted Christ. Now we're going to look at some of that in the future uh, study here in John, but most of us are aware of what took place before Jesus died on the cross. And he tells us, that persecution will happen to us. We also recognize that so few in the world kept the word of Christ. That's the last part of this verse here in verse 20. The word kept there. Even so, there will be a few along the way who will respond to our gospel witness rather than opposing it. But it is a case of Christians remaining in the minority. We will never be the majority in this world. We're going to face opposition. We're going to face persecution. As long as we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there will be times when an unbeliever will hear the word of God. Will obey, find deliverance from their bondage. And we can rejoice in that. That ought to be our goal to give forth the gospel. But the gospel never finds appeal among the masses. Instead, it is for the few who will enter the small gate in the narrow way of the crucified, risen Jesus Christ. So, first, know that the world hates Christ before it hates you. Secondly, remember that if they persecuted Christ, they will persecute you. And thankfully, if they keep his word, they will respond to your witness as well. So those are the commands to prepare us. For persecution. But secondly, there's conditions to distinguish. And our Lord shows us kind of in a simple way what a true believer is as opposed to a person of the world. The reason for persecution is not necessarily due to church membership. Just because you came to church this morning here in the corner of Highway 63 and Green Valley doesn't mean you're going to be persecuted. Most of the people, as I said in Sunday school, don't care if you're here this morning. But the time you start taking your witness out those doors and confronting them with their sin, Satan's going to oppose, and they'll probably oppose you as well. Some of the ones doing the persecuting sometimes, though, it's interesting, are members of local churches. 
Now, they may not be saved. You say a member of a church can not be saved? I think so. Sometimes they can say all the right words. They can say, I did this and I did that. And people say, okay, we're going to take your word for it. And we're going to receive you into the membership. When actually they never did trust Christ as their Savior. They're trusting their own works. But notice here that Christians are distinguished by, first of all, what you are not. Look at verse 19. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Now later in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, the Apostle John would clarify this statement by saying, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He goes on to say, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but... He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now, in light of that, we might ask, to whom do you belong? Well, look at your lifestyle. Look at your actions. They're going to unveil who your master really is. Who is your Lord? Check out the way you use your time, the way you spend your money, the things that interest you. I think all of these are clear indicators of whether or not you belong to Jesus Christ. I wonder, do you see the distinct marks of His saving work in all areas of your life? Can you honestly say that Christ is the first and foremost in all areas of my life? You know, too much of what is passed off as Christianity is simply the world wearing the cloak of religious talk, superficial professions, meaningless religious activity. Real Christianity strips you uh, from you a love for this worldly system and the way of life. You find yourself ill at ease with embracing the world or participating in its offerings. You're uncomfortable following a pattern of rebellion against the Lord and His holy law if you're truly saved. You don't feel at home in this world if you know the Lord. See, the Scriptures are very clear that there are some things that do not belong in a Christian's life. This is not to say if a Christian has a very clean lifestyle, he's automatically a Christian. You know, some people are very good people. They, very, they live very clean lives. Please don't understand the, uh, misunderstand this get, and get the idea that your works offer you a merit before a righteous judge. But it is clear that when Christ does His saving work in us, we become new creatures. We're changed. We're not that old person that we used to be. We have a new love for this life. We have a new Savior, a new uh, Lord to worship. Notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, but, you're washed and you're sanctified. But you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You see, God can take that old sin, sinful life, and change you and wash you and sanctify you and justify you into a new person. Ephesians 5, verse 3 through 6 says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be named among you as become a saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things becometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience." Now, the world cannot understand this complete change in lifestyle. They just don't understand it. Because they think Christianity is all uh, uh, boring. It's all about nothing exciting happening in their life. They don't understand that because there's no pleasures, lusts, and deceptions that the world just loves to prize. And so the world reacts to you as a Christian in the same way they reacted to the Lord. When you take a stand against unholy living, you're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be laughed at. You're going to be scorned. You're going to be opposed. So first of all, what you are not. But notice then, in verse 19, whose you are. First, what you are not, then whose you are. The Lord adds in verse 19 a second condition that distinguishes us, and it is whose you are. If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because ye are not of the world, I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. We must see that we are in the same mess as the rest of the world until Jesus, the Lord, shows us his amazing grace to us. And the psalm, a psalmist describes it very beautifully in Psalm 40, verse 2 and 3. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it, and fear, and shall trust in the Lord. Now, remember, this is still in the context of what Jesus said about choosing his disciples to be fruit bearers. In verse 16, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. He's not talking about choosing to salvation. He's talking about choosing to be a fruit bearer. Again, this is not so much about who he has chosen, but to what he has chosen us to. We belong to Jesus Christ, and he put us here on this earth for a reason, to bear fruit. And that's why Paul could face life with all its hardships and persecutions, and in his case, imprisonments, 
And he could say in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Even in prison, Paul? Yes, in prison. Even when you're beaten for your faith, Paul? Yes, thank God he counted me worthy to suffer for his namesake. Listen, we, we must go back to these truths and we must find rest for our souls in the midst of whatever opposition or persecution we might face. If you are Christ's own, you're, if you're a child of God, then go on through this time for eternity of the glories of Christ that lie before you. Consider the Apostle Paul for a moment. Here's a man who had, been, uh, who had persecuted Christians and he had done it with a raging passion. But when he was mightily saved by the grace of God, the persecution was leveled at him. He faced the threats, the opposition, the stonings, the beatings, the imprisonment, the ridicule, and so much more that it would take our, make our heads swim to even try to understand it and fathom it. And yet what he did, notice what he says about it. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16 for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look at not at things which we have seen, but things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now that's a source of great comfort. What you are not by the grace of God and whose you are by the grace of God. And we need to rest in that firm security knowing that we have an eternal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've seen so far commands to prepare you, conditions to distinguish you, and thirdly, comprehensions to assist. Comprehensions to assist. Why does the world act the way it does? Perhaps a good way to end this study on facing persecution is to be reminded of the pitiful condition of the world without Christ. The world can try to pull its, put its best foot forward, and even the best foot is hope, hopelessly depraved and lost. The world cannot go far without exposing the wretchedness of its sinful, rebellious nature. And so Christ shows us that the world is, number one, without the knowledge of God. Look at verse 21. But all things, all these things, will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Now keep in mind that Jesus was speaking about the most religious people of the first century. They loudly claimed their belief in Jehovah. Yet the sad thing is that with all their knowledge and their loud pronouncements, they did not know God, and claims mean nothing without evidence. I think we should remember that. Someone claims to be a, real, a Christian, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? Now, we must have pity rather than anger at this point. The horrible fact of lostness is that man does not know God. He may know some things about God, but he is separated from any kind of relationship with God until he comes to repentance. 
And until he does repent, he will persist in rebelling against the Almighty God and all those who follow him. The problem concerning the knowledge of God is not simply communication. Jesus communicated as no man had ever done before, but the hearts and the minds of the world were shut tight to the light of God. And until that light breaks in, darkened minds will oppose anyone who represents the light. So Christ shows us that the world is without the knowledge of God. Secondly, Christ shows us that the world it rejects the words of Christ. Look at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. The words of Jesus Christ spoken to the religious crowds overturned their traditions. He exposed the vanity of their religious exercises. His words shattered all the self-justification that the Jews had practiced, and it wrecked their confidence of, as spiritual men. His word was indeed a sharp two-edged sword. It exposed, it cut, it lay bare the reality of their spiritual condition. And sadly, they rejected the word of Christ. And I want us to realize again and be reminded this morning that we are ambassadors for Christ. As verse 16 shows us, we are now the ones carrying the message of light the light of truth. We are the heralds of the gospel. We are the representatives of Christ in this world. And when we live distinctly as Christians and proclaim the distinctives of the Christian message, the world becomes extremely uncomfortable and often lashes out. It's the very motivation for persecution. Having sin exposed for all its darkness against the backdrop of the glorious light of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's always a reaction by sinful man when his wicked heart is seen. He'll fight against any kind of exposure. He'll condemn it. He'll turn it off. He'll oppose it. And I remind you, you did the same thing when you were brought to the cross. Some of you opposed it. Some of you rejected it until you saw the light of the glorious gospel. And then the world rejects the works of Christ. Our Lord adds that not only were his words rejected, but also his works of righteousness in verse 24. Notice Jesus says he did things that no other man could do. So that the world hated it. Darkness cannot approve of light. For the presence of light dispels darkness. Every miraculous work of mercy. Every declaration of forgiveness. Every sin conquered by Christ. Met with the rejection by those whose hearts were full of rebellion against God. And it's not surprising knowing the condition of rebellious hearts. That a Pharisee would watch Jesus heal a man's withered hand and give sight to a blind man right before his very own eyes and then turn around and try to find a way to stop Christ. It's no surprise because that's how sad our spiritual plight is apart from God's grace. There are some in our day who would acknowledge some of the miracles of Christ, though it's popular to attribute those miracles to being 
just superstitions or try to explain them away by some fluke of nature, you know, a coincidence. But the prime work of Christ, his redemptive work at the cross, is rejected by hardened hearts of the world. Get into a crowd of worldly-minded people and vocally express your belief in Christ and His atoning death and watch their dismay. Listen to their laughter. Hear their insults. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. It says in Romans 8, 7. I read this week a very interesting article that, or about an interesting article that came out of the Vatican recently about the lack of deep-seated conviction of Protestant denominations regarding their faith. Now, number one, we as Baptists, uh, historic Baptists, are not Protestants, okay? We didn't protest anything. <laughs> and so uh, if you want me to explain that to you sometime, I, I can do that. But uh, this article is thinking that all non-Catholics uh, in religions were Protestant, but the Pope was dealing with the persecution that happens all over the world. Now, what most people don't understand and realize is that 99% of the persecution against Christians today is against Catholics. Now, I don't call Catholics Christians because they don't believe in Jesus Christ that I believe in, the God of the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible. If they did, there'd be a whole lot different practice there. But when you consider what happened to them, you're amazed at the willingness for people to die rather than deny their faith. But there's this story about a Baptist church. And this story is about a Baptist church where it was invaded by some black garb ninja type warriors bearing automatic weapons. And they came into the church auditorium and they began to fire their weapons at the ceiling. Of course, they were using blanks, but... Uh, one of the men shouted, Everyone who is not willing to die for your faith may leave immediately. Better than 80% of the congregation hurriedly left the church. And once everyone cleared out, the same man shouted to the pastor, said, There are your true Christians, pastor. You can preach to them. And then they walked out. Now, it's just a story, okay? I don't know if it actually took place. But it's a story to illustrate a truth. What would happen in this church if that took place? When real persecution comes, and time, it surely will, how willing will you be to die for your faith in Christ? Listen, persecution in many shapes, sizes, and forms is a reality for all who truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And do not think that something strange has happened to you when you're opposed as being a Christian. Instead, find fresh courage in knowing that you're taking part in the sufferings of Christ. Find new strength in knowing that you belong to Jesus Christ and that any degree of suffering is light and momentary when compared to the glories that you're going to receive in eternity. Take heart. Press on in living openly, boldly, courageously for Jesus Christ. Proclaim His gospel to this sin-hardened world. 
face whatever ridicule or threat that is cast your way for the cause of the kingdom of God. Rest in the arms of him who suffered on your behalf so you might have life with him for all eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven.